I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Marketing Trends and the Leeds Art Week. End-of-life planning is something we often put off. After all, nobody actually enjoys thinking about what happens after they die or where their personal belongings will end up. But the truth is, you have to consider your options at some point. That's one of the things that makes things tricky for Luke Sheehan, the CMO at Willful.co, a Canadian company that guides users through making their legal will online. What we really try and do is understand the life stages behind when people are most likely to need something like a will in their life. What we then do is try and understand what it is that's going through that consumer's mind state, the decisions they make. On this episode of Marketing Trends, Luke explains why that process is challenging. And he talks about some of the ways he uses marketing tools to help ease the minds of consumers and gain their trust along the way. Luke also explains how a good public relations strategy can feed into effective marketing and why it's important to understand who your key stakeholders are in order to leverage their influence. Enjoy this episode. This message is brought to you by Salesforce. Hey marketers, today's B2B buyers are more complex than ever and every buying committee has different needs and goals. Salesforce can help. We'll show you how to put each and every customer at the center of your B2B marketing strategy, and you'll learn how top brands like Lyft approach account-based marketing. Salesforce, market to every account, speak to every buyer. Find free B2B marketing and ABM resources at sfdc.co slash every dash buyer. Welcome to Marketing Trends. I'm Ian Faison, host of Marketing Trends, and today we are joined by a special guest. Luke, how are you? I'm very good. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, great to have you on the show. Excited to chat about what you're working on at Willful and talk about your background in marketing. So let's get into it. How did you get started in marketing in the first place? Good question. Um, it seems like a really long time ago, Ian, um, but as best as I can actually recall the specifics, I had always been really attracted to things where there was some kind of a creative output some form of problem solving and some form of looking at things that have a basis in data. I tried my best to try and find careers, options that that married those things really well together as best as I possibly could. Um, And the path always led me to some form of marketing. So when I very first got started in my career, that was um, more of a kind of a CPG kind of company-based thing. I did lots of work around um, in-store marketing and fixtures and um, making sure that uh, the merchandising on a, a stack of chocolate bars was as good as it possibly could be. Um, and then later in my career, I morphed more into, I guess, traditional brand type advertising. Um, and then more laterly into digital um, marketing um, that covers the entire gambit from acquiring users, keeping them engaged with CRM type things. And then making sure that, I guess, under it all, um, we've got a really strong back brand story to tell them we're doing the right thing by our users. So flash forward to today. Tell us a little bit about the responsibilities. What does it mean to be CMO of Willful? Honestly, I'm probably still... Figuring it all out, um, Ian. I think the, uh, the the thing that I found in most of my my recent marketing um, senior positions, um, there, there's some commonality. I think if you take the industry, uh, the sector, whatever it is you're actually doing or setting out of it, um, the the things that I think matter most are are making sure that um, firstly that the company um, is doing everything it can to hit its numbers. So the very first thing that I'm minded to do every day is just to check that. Um, we're meeting our, meeting our acquisition targets, the things like the metrics around uh, traffic acquisition, the, the revenue expect per user, those kind of things are all very front of mind because without those, 
very quickly that the business won't really have much of a, of a leg to stand on. Um, and I think once we've got a decent handle on the economics in the company, making sure that side of things is working, my mind very quickly switches to, well, what's the experience like for our users, our customers? So if I spend some time actually in our products, so going through the processes that we expect people to go through and, and be successful as users, um, are there any flaws there? Have we listened to people where we should have done um, and could we, doing a bit, could we be doing a better job of, of, of making those people um, kind of happy? So I think that's a, the second major part. And then on top of that, um, something that I also really believe in, um, despite the fact that um, I now most exclusively work in, in digital companies, um, I'm still a really big believer in, in brand marketing. So the concepts that um, there has to be something really strong that underpins what it is about a business that you could expect people to love about it in the first place. Um, and I think that if companies really have a good handle on, on their brand, um, how the brand they have appeals to the users or the niche they're going after as customers, there's a much better chance of all the things like the digital acquisition tactics, the CRM, the PR, all that kind of stuff working on top of it. So I try to straddle those few things. It's making sure that we're making money in the right places and the metrics are pointing there, um, making sure that our users are having the, the right experience we'd want them to. Um, and then thirdly, making sure that um, our brand is, is coming through front and center. Tell me a little bit more about Willful. Um, how the how the company come about? I mean, I know this is a huge deal. My brother and I were talking about it uh, a couple of weeks back about how ridiculously expensive it is to get a will uh, and to mm. figure that out. So clearly, this is a massive need. It is. Um, it's a, it's a really interesting product, actually. Um, so how it came about was very much a classic founder story. So Kevin, who was the original found one of the co-founders in the business, experienced the death in the family. Um, and realized really quickly that then the things that you have to go through as somebody that is on the, I guess, the, the bereaved end of, of that kind of a scenario is quite extraordinary. There's so much uh, process. It's costly. It's obscure. You never know where the documents are. And even if people do have estate plans and wills in place, even figuring out where those documents are stored um, is just something that's extraordinarily difficult and just kind of antiquated. So it's kind of one of the, the last holdouts for things that, that we know could and should be done better online, but the consumer kind of default behavior hasn't quite moved there yet. It's very much a, a case of, yep, there's clearly something here that, that people in their, their thousands, their millions every year are, are doing, um, and we firmly believe they could be doing it in a better way. And that's really by just doing it online instead of going to a traditional, I guess, family type lawyer. Yeah. So what's, what's, like, what's the average cost savings for something like this? It's actually quite tricky to work out. It's multiple hundreds of dollars. So we know that, um, firstly, we, we have no issue at all with the, the traditional kind of family lawyer space. You know, those guys do a great job, um, I think, uh, in, in the places where they, they add value. And it's the kind of thing that um, often, if you suddenly need legal advice or if you're buying a house or something else has happened to you, it's very common for somebody to say, oh, I know a guy call my friend here, he's a lawyer, he'll help you out. So that, that's the kind of the default consumer behavior that we're, we're trying to challenge. And I think cost is definitely a part of that. But um, in addition to the fact that by using a service like Willful, and there's others out there, there's, there's a few down in the States that do a really good job as well. Um, it's also the, the convenience. So especially in the, the pandemic days, um, you know, I'm not sure about you, Ian, I, I can imagine having to actually call a, a lawyer and make an appointment to go into a small office and sit there while somebody thumbs through old pieces of paper and it just, it all feels a a little bit not something you'd want to be doing. Um, so yeah, if we then told you, well, in 20 minutes, you can do all of that and have the same degree of legal protection um, as you would get from the lawyer, but you can do that from the comfort of your own home, then it's a question of, well, why wouldn't you? And by the way, you can save quite a bit of money doing it. So the benefits, I think, are, are pretty compelling. Um, and it's like a lot of other industries which have um, kind of embraced the, the digital age. 
yeah, it's it's just the, the way I think that, that it's going to go. So our job is to make sure that the people get there quickly. And hopefully when they do, they do that with our company and not somebody else's selfishly. You know, you're a Canadian company. Um, does that impact, you know, how, how you're segmenting the market? Who are, who are your customers? Who are your ideal customers? Yeah, that's a really good question. Again, um, we could take the view that our customer base is anybody, our potential customer base is anyone that doesn't have a, a doesn't have a will. So um, in Canada, that's something like 57% of the adult population is currently um, willless, if you like, for one of a better technical term. So that's a big number. Um, Canada is nowhere as big as the States in terms of population, but that's still multiple millions of people. So as a, as a consumer segment, that's really attractive. We have to drill down and be a little more specific because if we went out trying to acquire 57% of Canadian consumers in a kind of a blanket sense, I think it'd cost a huge amount of money and take an enormous amount of time and we wouldn't really get there in as efficient way as we possibly could do. So what we really try and do is understand the life stages behind when people are most likely to need something like a will in their life. Um, what we then do is try and understand what it is that's going through um, that consumer's mind state, the decisions they make. So I, I gather that um, you have a, a baby in the house. So congratulations. I do indeed. You do indeed. Okay. So I also have a young, a young son, so we, we can uh, sympathize about that later. But um, the, uh, if you take a, an event in your life like having a child, it suddenly forces into perspective things that you probably didn't really think about before that now you suddenly know you can't live without having in your life. Um, so questions like, well, if the unthinkable happened to, to one of us, who would look after our children? That now becomes something that you can't avoid in your life. And you're then in the position of needing some kind of legal counsel um, to help you um, shape a will. It could be something like buying a house. It could be um, suddenly inheriting your money or selling a business. There's a number of triggers that people go through um, that we think are the most likely I guess, events in their lives that we can then um, kind of get in front of them and say, okay, guys, you know, you need this, this will, you could go to a lawyer and that's completely fine. But here we've got a better, um, cheaper, faster, easier way to do this. Um, why don't you give willfully go? Taking a step back here, um, when you joined the company, uh, you came into the role. What were, the, what were those first 90 days like for you uh, coming in as the new CMO? Yeah, the first thing I'd probably say is that um, willful is a much smaller business than anything I've worked in for quite some time. So there's only um, about 15 full-time employees. So we're, we're small, but kind of growing very quickly. Um, and I think the first 90 days was a combination of figuring out how do I hit the ground running and make an impact quickly, um, but in a way that's respectful for um, understanding how the business likes to work, uh, not being too forceful and shoehorning, in my opinion, from every other business that I, I've been in, in the last few years. So I think taking the time to respectfully understand um, the consumer need um, and what it is the company's really all about is the big one. But you also don't want to take too long to do that. Because especially in small businesses, it's really a case of all hands to the pump. Like everybody literally has to be on everything. So um, it's very common um, for me to start my morning by writing email copy for a newsletter, then having a bunch of one-on-ones with my teams, uh, reviewing scorecards and data, um, and then responding to customers on Facebook if they've had a good, bad, or a different experience about Willful. So it's really a case of bridging the, the immediate things we have to get done day to day. Um, of which a huge number end up on the, the CMO's plate. But then also making sure we do a good job in encouraging the business to think longer term so that we think strategically. Um, we have a strong roadmap set out for both marketing and, and product development. And again, that we're, we're balancing the commercial needs of the business for what our consumers are telling us they want um, and trying to do all that and, and, and more in, in the space of five days a week. So yeah, it's, it's a challenge. It really is. But um, it's a, a pretty breathless but fun one. Yeah, no kidding. And, you know, I, I'd imagine that, you know, being a, a VP a bunch of times at, 
different companies taking kind of the smaller role. You're doing a lot more things that, you know, you didn't have to do before. Is there anything that surprised you um, in, in joining the, the smaller company or something that, that you didn't see coming? <laughs> the stuff that surprises me every day. Again, that's like something that's awesome. Um, you know, some of the things that I've, I've been blown away by since joining Willful, are firstly, just the, the, the kind of the real team sense and the, the very mission-driven approach to the company and, the, and the, the way that the founders have managed to build a team um, that really do believe in, in achieving the mission of, of everybody in, in Canada having, having a will, that, that's, I think, no small undertaking because you have to be very specific and, and very um, determined about the kind of people you want to bring into the business. Um, so that's something that, that I'm, I'm still very impressed by. I think that uh, coming from bigger companies, um, yeah, a lot of it, I think, is just trying to make sure that you, you bring the, the right version of yourself to the, to the table. Some companies that I've worked with in the past have been very, very successful. But as a result of that, they've necessitated having really erroneous processes and, and lots of kind of red tape. And it's very difficult to execute and get things done. Willful, you can't be like that. Like if we want to get something moving, um, then we have to jump on it. We have to make business cases. We have to write software development requirements um, and just try and make things happen in, in, a, in a quick space of time. So I think I'm, I'm most surprised by the, the speed that we can achieve things as a small team. Um, but I really think the reason that works, because as I said, um, the company's done a great job in making sure they, they bring the right people into the business. They don't just care about the getting paid. Um, they really do care about the mission behind the business too. So yeah, any company that can kind of really nail that the mission, I think in connection to its employee base is a really, really strong one. You know, as you as you mentioned, um, you're marketing to people that are kind of in those life spaces. There's usually a lot of competition in those kind of moments, right? Where you know, I get served a million newborn, you know, parent mm. ads all the time now, and lots of people are, are are positioning around, you know, people getting married, people having kids, people doing stuff like that. How do you kind of navigate those potentially choppy waters? Well, I guess if it's in terms of trying to see we're talking here i guess about I, I said earlier we try and target people at this stage in their lives those stages in their lives are very very heavy there's there's lots of noise decisions to be made and it's not just um within any specific category so um my former company was a um a financial services um advisory kind of um platform called ratehub.ca um and we had a very successful mortgage brokerage so um a similar kind of thing we were always trying to get people to make sure that when they were thinking about housing um how do we make sure that we have uh, content and marketing that appeals to them when they're at very, very high funnel stages. So before they even know what they can afford to borrow, how do we get to the, the right kind of minds then? Um, make sure that we serve up content that keeps them engaged and nurtured so that eventually when they do get to the point that they actually need a million dollars tomorrow to go buy a house somewhere, um, we're the first thing that comes to mind. And we've kind of nailed that, that brand saliency and, and we're ready to go. And I think it's, it's more challenging in, in companies like Willful because we're trying to piggyback on those life stage moments um, whilst people are doing these other things that are incredibly taxing on them and very, and very uh, stressful, um, very time consuming. Um, we just have to make sure that when we do anything like serve ads, when we try and communicate to these people, um, firstly, that uh, we take a great deal of care with messaging. So we wouldn't want to be seen as a company that um, is, is pushy around something that's obviously quite a, a delicate situation. So I think um, taking a very careful approach to how we craft our content um, and make sure that we we try and serve the most appropriate version of that to the to the right user at the right time is the first thing. And then I think it's a lot of repetition. Again, something to think of with my dad hat on. Um, you have to tell your kids like the same thing ten times to get them to the, in the hope of doing anything, right? And it's true of adults too. So um, if we think about that from a marketing communications perspective, 
once I've isolated the, the life stage of an audience they really want to go after, it's not good enough just to try and kind of hit them one or two times with something that we think is, is a compelling piece of copy or a strong ad. Um, we've really got to do that 10 or 20 times and make sure that at every point we have an opportunity to influence, we've made the most of it um, and that the user will not just walk away and, and completely forget we exist. So yeah, it's, um, it's quite a long cycle. Um, you know, I, I think there's probably very few people that would be certain ad um, on Instagram saying, uh, hey, you got a will, and, and they click there and just start doing it. For sure, there, there's people out there that are like, that are like that, but it's more likely they've gone through a longer kind of nurture cycle, and then we did the right things to get them to a point where we can convert them when they're ready for it. Well, and I think, you know, part of that is it's such a family decision, right, is you want to spark that conversation between the person's partner, between their parents, between, you know, whatever it is. I mean, it's about creating some sort of impetus to have a conversation first before they're going to do anything anyways. It it is. And it's, we know it's quite a tricky thing to, for some people to bring up. Okay. So we think about the the life stage thing. Say there's, there's five buckets of kind of core consumers that we really want to try and, and, and win with. Um, I think you've still got to kind of layer on top of that. Within that group, still, we're looking for people that are probably um, just naturally very organized in their personal lives. Um, they're the kind of people that have a joke about this with my uh, wife, but people at the office, because she got us wills years ago. Uh, Melissa, my wife, is also the kind of person that's got a five-year um, servicing and maintenance plan for our air conditioning unit. It'll probably never go, you know, go wrong, but she just thinks about things like that. So it's always, I think, too, that some of the best and most interesting conversations that we have at Willful uh, are really when we sit around and, and try and get under the skin of, of what, uh, what our users are really like. And if we can isolate the, the really hardcore, the people that we know would be evangelists and, and kind of would do a good job of recommending a business like ours, um, how do we tap into that and, and then try and use that as a network effect um, to get those people to kind of doing our, helping us do our jobs for us and getting the word out there? Um, because I do believe if we can really do a good job of penetrating the right audience um, at the right time, that do believe as passionately as we do that this stuff's important, then that's an incredibly powerful kind of ally to have as a brand. Yeah, you know, it's it's funny. I um, as some I literally was having this conversation before I even knew we were doing this interview. Mm-hmm. So I, I had this conversation not too long ago, and I remember my brother just saying, "Like this is just so crazy expensive," and you know, all you're trying to do is just set your, set your family up for, for, right. for the future. And it is a huge pain and you have to go to this place and you have to do all this stuff. It seems like this, the next generation of, of folks is not going to do things that way. Right. Like, I mean, if you're yeah. under the age of 25, you're not going to do any of that. Uh, I suspect not. I mean, I, I hope not. You know, I think um, we, we could take that view in a number of different industries. And uh, in some cases, there's still, um, there are still cases that blow my mind of things that you would think, well, there's a much better way of doing this, but people still default to the, the traditional behavior. And um, a good example of that um, that's non-will related, again, when I worked for, um, uh, for Rate Hub, so in financial services, there are still a huge amount of people that um, go to bank branches and carry out their, their transactions over a counter. And if you sit down and tell them, okay, guys, we, you, you do this this way, we can do this for you. We can show you a better way where you can do that that saves you time, saves you money, gives you greater choice and more options, kind of, can we sign you up? And they'll still say no. They'll be like, ah, you know what, I'm kind of happy the way it's going. I'm just going to stick with that. So there, there are always kind of holdouts. And I'm still surprised um, in the modern age um, how long it still takes some kind of consumers to, to move over to things that I guess people in that kind of position see as, as absolute no-brainers. Like, well, I've just told you this is easier and cheaper. Why aren't you doing it? Like, what, what is wrong with you? That's just, I think, the, the, the way that people are. 
But then everything um, of some other industries. So again, I worked um, for um, an online travel agency called Flight Network. Um, and travel is really interesting because that was probably the first big industry that really shifted online. I'm just bad enough to remember that 20 years ago or so, you could still walk into a, a kind of a travel agency uh, on, a, on a street, like a main street kind of thing, walk in there and, and, and book a, a trip anywhere in the world. And, and that was how you did that. Um, but within five years of, of the, the online kind of revolution, most of those companies went away because it just became so much easier to do travel online. So in some places it does work and it's a very swift and, and kind of almost merciless process for the people left in those kind of legacy parts of the industry. Um, but still in other cases, um, people just aren't quite willing to, to, to move online. So again, value props, really simple. Guys, you've been doing it this way all these years. There's a better way. Here it is. And even still, and that was a phenomenally successful business. Um, there were still some people that, that we couldn't get there. And um, I guess you always get that. I probably order 50% of my pizzas by just calling. And uh, it's funny because every single time I do, I'm just like, it's almost always to ask for specials. Uh, right. Yeah, fair <laughs> enough. But it's like, but no, it's, but it's like one of the, that is like one of those things, right? You're like, if they have a clunky digital experience, mm -hmm. then you're going to call, right? Because it's just like one tap and uh, it's all right. But if they don't, like it's like which is going to take longer, and it's funny how we kind of like mentally calibrate which will take longer in our mind, or if there's some added benefit to doing that. Um, yeah, that that is true, and and I think it's um you, you start off the questioning by saying, well, surely younger people are, are just going to make all this stuff easier for you, and that's I think over time probably that that is going to be true, but um you're quite right. Even still, I think that what's happened in the past ten years is that as technology has become more sophisticated, more available, and more advanced what really happens is that it drives the expectations in consumers' minds of what technology could and should deliver for them through the roof. So then if you have a consumer that has in their mind, okay, the tech world's kind of moving like this and, and that's how I expect my, my digital life to follow suit. If you're then a company that is trying to offer a digital service um, and it's not that good, so you haven't nailed the pain points you haven't got service availability, you haven't figured out a way to add or take anchovies off of somebody's pizza, um, very quickly, people will become um, kind of uh, disengaged with that and, and they will fall back to, to the old ways because at the end of the day, it worked. So I think um, that, that thing about the consumer mindset going this way in mind, companies just, they've really got to double down on digital experiences and make sure that at every point they have an ability to influence how a consumer experiences their brand or product, they just have to make the most of it. Not to keep harping on about pizzas, uh, a company that actually did really well was Domino's. So they um, have famously become kind of the, the global leader now in, in, in online pizza ordering. Um, and I think that's because, firstly, they had a very strong brand position um, that they, they did a very good job of evolving. Um, and secondly, their, their evolution, their, their innovation in their digital experience was also really good. So I think they realized early on, okay, if we're going to be the ones that win in the online world pizza, we have to make sure that the process is at least as good or better than somebody calling or going into a, to a, to an outlet and, and doing it over the counter. Um, and so they were the first company, I believe, to have an app that had zero clicks to order. So it was probably a bit of a PR stunt, but digital marketing, you're constantly trying to reduce the number of interactions that you give to your consumers in the hope that it improves your conversion rate. Domino's took that a step further and said, well, why do they have to click anything? So in that instance, you'd open the Domino's app and it would default order the last thing you bought, I think within the last 30 days or something, um, based on a timer without you having to actually click anything, which I thought was pretty slick. That is slick. I like that. So... 
What does the life cycle look like for for one of your customers? You know, especially if you, if you if you need to make updates to your will over time. You know, every every year, every handful of years. Like, what 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 does it look like? What types of communications are you keeping with them? What's the uh, life cycle journey look like? Yeah, it's a brilliant question. Um, that is actually one of our biggest challenges as a business right now. So. Um, we, we do a pretty good job of, actually a very good job of, of attracting people to the brand, to the shop window, um, if, if you like, and get them through the door. We, we offer things like free updates to the wheel. And of course, there are a group of our users that are very diligent and take, take advantage of that. But I think it's fair to say more than we'd like, tend to view it as a bit of a, a set it and forget it kind of one night stand type experience. So they, they do the wheel. They then think, okay, box ticks, I'm going to go away now and not worry about that until I've died in a hundred years or whatever it's going to be. Really what we'd like them to do is just to take more proactive measures to constantly stay on top of their affairs so that really when, and if anything does happen, they're just leaving a much better state for their their families, their friends to to deal with um, if that were the case. So a lot of our product innovation and our future thinking is really all about how do we keep people coming back into, into the experience um, and not just have somebody that signs up once and then vanishes for 20 years, which in our company is is quite a big thing to nail. I think, uh, yeah, there's there's lots of ways we could extend our, our kind of monetization, um, but it's got to be the, the right move. And then obviously, you know, this is primarily, you know, seemingly a B2C B2 play. Is there is there any B2B component to this? There actually is, yeah. I mean, it's um, so at the moment, it's more of a B2C via a B2B kind of intermediary. So um, we have a, a small B2B team and, and they work by effectively selling plans and, and kind of volume deals to financial advisors. So a financial advisor then has um, an offer they can give to their client as a value add. So, hey, you, you were doing all these, these complex transactions. You should really have um, an estate plan in order. Here's a, a, a discount to use Willful. Um, you can get that all done as well in, in the space of 20 to 30 minutes. So that's actually been quite a big growth area for us as a company um, because uh, there are still so many independent financial advisors and, and people that, that have one-to-one relationships with users that we don't have immediate access to. Um, so yeah, we, we try and utilize B2B channels to, to speed that job up for us. In case it's confusing, I said B2C, but kind of with a B2B intermediary. It is a B2B channel for sure. It's more just that the, the, the end product is still the same one as a B2C user would experience. So for sure, the, the, the business-to-business angle it really gives us a kind of like a net new distribution channel, which is quite efficient because these people already have such a good relationship with their clients. Yeah. Okay. Then, yeah, that makes sense. It's yeah. Like a, um, almost like channel selling or something like that, where these Precisely. people have 500 clients and they're like, Hey, you know, you should, they should just all use willful because that makes life way easier. Yeah. And I, I think too, it's, um, and this is something that you, I guess you find a lot. I'm sure had tons of these conversations, small companies, there's always tons of, of things you could do. So the, the opportunities are like, oh, let's go over here and, and do this. Let's go and do this. And I could probably spend five hours just talking to you about where I think the B2B side of the business could go. Because I think even if we think about extensions in terms of, um, we've had some success selling directly to big big clients. So hey, if you're a um, AT&T customer, you now get a discount on, on a Will product and we can email that to all of those users. And that's again, a really efficient acquisition channel for us. But yeah, in, in addition to that, I think any way that we can tap into things like company benefit plans as well is, is quite a big area. So it's become very normal for companies to provide their employees with um, a host of services from, um, I don't know, dental coverage, obviously, and medical through to things like a physio and chiropractors and that kind of stuff. So um, why are companies not offering their employees wills? I think that's a pretty obvious place that they could probably extend that kind of a product. 
Um, so that again, could be something that we see a big, big growth from in the future. Coming up here, you have a, a pretty cool opportunity. You are going to be featured on uh, the Canadian version of Shark Tank, essentially, right? It's called Dragon's Den. It is. <laughs> yeah. Tell me, tell me about this. Yeah. So um, there's probably only so much I can actually say. So the, the show is like Shark Tank. Uh, it tapes in advance. You don't find out until much closer to the air date whether you're one of the companies that, that's likely to be featured. But yeah, in effect, um, it's a great opportunity because um, it immediately gives you, I think, firstly, um, credibility. So the the producers of the show will only let um, kind of you know decent um, companies go on there to pitch for them, and it's a very real investment opportunity as well. And again, for the lots of small businesses, that can be uh, incredibly valuable. The really big thing though it gives you in is just the kind of the ready-made media asset of the facts you're a company that's been on a, a kind of a tier one television show. So what um, the models kind of become with this stuff is to pretty much take the, the asset of, of your founders going onto the show to pitch the, pitch the idea, um, and then us converting that into as many different marketing opportunities as we possibly can, because it's just instant credibility to users. Um, and there's not much that's more valuable than uh, uh, kind of a, a sticker saying, as seen on Dragon's Den, um, because people have had 15 years knowing that that's a, a kind of a serious thing. And it kind of instantly gives you that that credibility boost as a small business. Is there like some type of marketing prep that you all are going to do for that? Uh, yeah, there is. Um, so not to kind of get ahead of ourselves because there is still the chance that we don't make it to air and there could be a, uh, another company that comes along that blows the, the, the dragons out of the, the water, so to speak, and um, kind of takes our place. But um, we're pretty confident that we, we we have a good pitch and the business is interesting enough to actually get us to, to get some airtime. It's just not guaranteed yet. Um, so what we'll then do um, is just try and think of how we can leverage that asset. So that again, the kind of it's, it's a bit like the old infomercials and you'd see things in store that said, as seen on TV, like the, the shopping channel, the, the, the kind of the, the pitch wars, that kind of stuff. So um, we'll most certainly kind of adapt all of our existing assets to reference the fact that we were featured on Dragon's Den. I think that's the kind of a very quick thing to do. And then I think if we're feeling confident about the, the way that the show has portrayed the business, it's probably also an opportunity for us to really kind of accelerate some of our brand awareness um, type marketing. So if we've quickly gone from a company that very few people have heard of in an industry that builders nobody really knows exists, um, it just gives us such an enormous boost um, to be able to say to consumers across the country, um, yeah, we're the guys you saw on TV on, on Dragon's Den. Click on the link, check it out, um, fill in your will, and, and you're, you're good to go. So I think um, for companies especially, there's a kind of a credibility gap that you always have to face. So if you're dealing with something that's, again, uh, quite sensitive, people, I think, are, are rightly can be reluctant to, uh, I shouldn't say all people, but some, are, I think, uh, they, they kind of want to kick the tires a bit before they start putting their personal information into, into websites. If I told you that we're an online will platform in this kind of conversation, you'd probably think that was legitimate because... Um, hopefully, I don't seem like a, an untrustworthy guy, and I'm, I'm not going to try and scam you. But it's probably a different proposition if you're just faced with a series of, of Google and social media ads, and you haven't heard of a business before, then how do you assess in a quick, quick space of time whether that's something that is credible um, and something that you're willing to submit personal information to? In the course of a normal kind of market marketing cycle, that kind of credibility, kind of closing that gap, I think, is achieved by a number of ways. It's making sure that um, your product is good. Your assets on your web marketing site are, are kind of solid. People can kind of quickly and easily see who's behind the business, the founder story. They obviously want to make sure that the ads are well constructed and that it all looks very kind of genuine. 
but again, if you can just add that thing on, by the way, guys, this was something that was featured on Dragon's Den, and we can show insert clip here of our founders kind of pitching the business. Um, it just has such a powerful effect for getting that quick decision for people. But yeah, this is the business I can trust and I'll, I'll, I'll put my faith in. It's, it starts from being kind of like a big brand boosting thing, but it also really enables conversion, I think. Yeah, it's a great point. I mean, there's a lot of people who kind of scoff at PR these days, depending on the type of company and product and all that stuff, or different types of PR, maybe how PR used to be done versus how it should be done now. But there is no power like a, a, a public testimonial. And obviously, like Shark Tank, if you look at just the success that they've had, just exploding businesses, sales and skyrocketing, you know, they're both valuations and and just companies in general. We yeah. used to talk about getting your book on the Oprah Book Club as like right. you know, guaranteed bestseller right at that point because it's going to get promoted so much. Do you think about other ways where you can put your team in front of stuff? And also, you know, you you do a bunch of creative partnerships as well, which I think is another piece of that. Yeah, so we do. I think um, if you're a company that's got a $100 million to spend, that's kind of a, a different proposition because you can buy your way out of pretty any situation, right? And so all the things I just described of um, having to kind of slowly build credibility and trust, you can kind of um, hammer high quality TV ads, kind of upscale brand partnerships and, and kind of spend your way into, into glory there. Small companies like us, we don't really have that. So I think it's more of a question of understanding the, the assets that we have at our disposal um, and then understanding how we leverage those to our best advantage. In the case of um, things like partnerships, for sure, that can be tremendously valuable if we align ourselves with the right people and the right brands that we know people within those kind of hard to reach audience segments trust, it just gives us that kind of first foot through the door that otherwise we probably wouldn't have. Um, so I think that's something that, that definitely has value. And then to your point about PR, yeah, look, I think it's, um, it's something that if you have any kind of opportunity in your business, you can exploit. If you have a, a natural strength from one of the team, if you have a, a business that just exists in a sector where there's lots of Lots of conversation, lots of opinion. Um, you've absolutely got to lean into that and find a way to make the best of it. And if you can do that and, and do a good job of it, um, it's sometimes as valuable as, as spending kind of millions of dollars on, on TV ads and, and that kind of stuff. Um, but it does remind me, actually, going back to Dragon's Den, it's kind of haunting me because uh, Willful will now be the third company I've worked at where we've, we've done Dragon's Den. So um, back in my Just Eat days, we, we bought a small company called Grub Canada. And uh, they, they did uh, Dragon's Den. I guess it's still called Dragon's Den at the time. Probably different dragons, but the same den. Um, Ray Tables to did Dragon's Den. And um, what we, we did find also was that even now when those episodes kind of re-air and there's repeats running and, and daytime TV or whatever, um, they still drive web traffic up. So it's a really kind of powerful kind of call to action. People will just sit there and go, that looks interesting or cool. Um, and they'll punch it into Google. So um, yeah, all the ways you possibly can, you're going you're gonna to hear me and everybody else in my company talking about Dragon's Den until, until we're blue in the face. Too funny. Jeez, you got, you're like the, uh, the, the whisperer there. <laughs> yeah, that stuff I, on. I, I'll stress everybody keeps me well away from the actual action end of getting on the TV. I don't think I've, uh, I've got to look for it. But um, no. So can you share a little bit more about some of the partnerships that you've had um, like with Allstate and, and stuff like that? Because I think it speaks to that era of, of credibility that is so important for a product like yours? Yeah, it really is. It's kind of like cool by association. If we can align ourselves and, and do the hard work to put our kind of brand name in the, in the same conversation as somebody like Allstate. Um, we did another one, a big one recently with a, a financial app here called, called Mocha, which is, which is pretty big. Um, it just really changes the games in terms of um, how consumers see you and how trustworthy, again, they, they believe you are. And I think it's something that if you can get a relationship off the ground with somebody like Allstate, 
um, which took a year of kind of diligent hard work, lots of conversations. Um, back and forth and um, technical kind of integrations that we probably had to move heaven and earth to try and achieve as, as a small team. Um, but it's just worth it. It, it. It's kind of these these partnerships are worth their weight in gold because straight away, people don't have to worry about whether this is kind of a, any kind of a sketchy um, business, something they have to worry about. If they, uh, consumers can see that you've, uh, you've done those things to align yourself with another brand that they see as being trustworthy and valuable, it's uh, worth its weight in gold. It really is. But I, I will stress that for any small business, it is a lot of work to do this. So I think that the B2B team, this is before my time, so I can't take credit for this at all. They, they kind of had to work their socks off, you know, kind of often seven days a week to do all the things that Allstate needed them to do to continue moving forward with the partnership and to actually get it live. And that's very much a big company kind of thing. And I, I've, I had this working in the banking sector too. They're, they're incredibly stringent, big companies about the, the conditions with which you can interact with them and even when it comes to things like press releases and, and co-branding opportunities, obviously as a small company, you want to try and exploit those for all you can because again, it's the it's the hey, everybody, look at look at what we're doing over here. We're, we're working with a big company called, called Allstate now. Isn't this great? Doesn't mean that the partner on the other side of the table necessarily sees it like that, or they just don't have the same impetus to try and push those things through. So, what might seem like a huge priority to my team to get something approved by Allstate might be the hundredth thing on the list for the person that, that we work with there. And then I think it's a question of, of how well you've done in building the relationship and making sure that both parties do understand that if you get into any kind of a relationship like this, um, there has to be a common goal and you are both working toward the same kind of truth. And if you can do that and, and evolve the relationship such a way that, that there's trust and respect there, um, then eventually even small companies can, can get big companies to, to help them out and do things that, they, that we would probably not expect them to do in other, any other way. Do you have any favorite uh, campaigns uh, that you've uh, run over the past uh, year or so? To be honest, everything at Willful so far is very um, kind of by the book digital acquisition. So it's, it's about building a kind of very efficient funnel. Um, there hasn't been much room for anything too crazy. Favorite campaigns that I've worked on, um, again, it, it always sounds more frivolous because of the category that I'm talking about, but um, going back to the days at, at Just Eat, we did some really interesting stuff then um, combining our digital business with the, with the more traditional ways of building the brand offline. So we would combine um, kind of zany TV um, ad executions um, with digital experience tactics to try and make sure that if people um, had a perception of what the brand is all about and an ad they saw on a television um, commercial, that we would follow through that experience when it came through to them actually interacting with the app or, or the product. So some examples of that were we once orchestrated a live TV commercial where we, we kidnapped um, a fake celebrity chef and held him hostage uh, and then had an interactive game where people would go on uh, and actually slapped the guy in the face with a, a little wet fish, which as I talk back through that now seems completely nuts. But um, it was a really big campaign and it was really successful for us. And I think what it proved is that if you can be creative um, in a way that your target audience um, resonates with them and, and they can buy into there's a far greater chance you'll build kind of a hardcore of actual kind of fans, people that really believe in what you do as a business. And they'll be the repeat visitors that drive up your revenues, that keep coming back through the door and, and really kind of change your commercial fortunes. Where I, I, I kind of veer a little bit away from as an approach is doing kind of very generic and um, vanilla type marketing campaigns that try to appeal to too many people um, in the process of doing that kind of fail and, and don't really win anything at all. So if you, if you have a brand, you can kind of really evolve that identity into a place where it has power and something meaningful for, for your audience, then you've got to double down and, and make sure that you're, you're not kind of chickening out when you, you could be going, going big. 
Okay, let's get into our lightning round questions. These questions are fast and easy, just like marketing with Salesforce. Salesforce.com slash marketing is where you need to go to learn more about marketing on the world's number one CRM. That is Salesforce. They're the best. Check them out. They've been with us since the very beginning of marketing trends. We love them dearly. Go to salesforce.com slash marketing to learn more. Lightning round questions. Luke, are you ready? I am ready. Number one, what do you do for fun? Ooh, played this off. CMOs are notorious for getting tons of emails. How many unread emails do you have sitting in that inbox? Um, I famously got to 66,666, which I screenshotted because it was such a cool devilish number. <laughs> That's good. Uh, if you weren't in marketing, what do you think you'd be doing? Ooh, I'd like to think I'd be some kind of frustrated film uh, director or something in the kind of creative industry. Whose marketing are you jealous of? I uh, really struggled to answer it in a quick way. I would probably say the craft beer industry in Canada. They do really, they do really cool stuff. And in all the ways that I swear about them having they, they kind of know your audience stuff, they nail it. Yeah. What any specific one? Uh, my favorite is probably a local brewery called Great Lakes Brewery. Um, and they just do a really, really good job of their, their kind of their products and their, their user engagement. I love it. It means I drink too much of it, but it's, it's all good stuff. What is your best advice for a first-time CMO? For a first-time CMO, um, find out exactly what's expected of you um, and just check in regularly to make sure that you're delivering against what your boss ultimately expects. I love it. Luke, thanks again for joining. I appreciate it. It's been awesome having you on the show. All of our listeners go to willful.co to check it out, willful.co. Uh, if you need an online will, they make it easy. So go check them out. Any final thoughts? Anything to plug? Um, I don't think so. Just as you said, check out willful.co. Um, it's been great having the chat, in. I appreciate you, um, you guys making time. And uh, yeah, everybody get on with your estate planning. Even if it's not with Willful, it's a good thing to get a handle on. Awesome. Thanks, Luke. No problem. Cheers. Bye-bye. You have eight seconds to make a connection or risk a click away onto the next topic. The difference lies in your ability to deliver relevant experiences to your audience across devices and across channels. But delivering on a really great experience is impossible without the right people and the right technology. You've got the right people, but your technology choices will make or break someone's experience with your brand. At the center of gravity of your digital experience, Brightspot Content Management System can deliver relevant content, personalized experiences, and cross-channel synergies to create unforgettable brand experiences. So you can be a bright spot in someone's day. Head over to brightspot.com forward slash marketing trends to find out right now. From global crisis to hunger relief efforts, the messages you deliver save lives, inform important decision-making, and help keep communities safe and sound. The speed and scale of your content needs to be delivered faster and on a much larger scale. Brightspot Content Management System has supported some of the world's largest brands to communicate on a global scale. From Johnson & Johnson sharing critical information with their customers to helping Whole Foods tell their brand story to a global audience. Brightspot is designed to handle rapid iteration and personalized messages to those you care about most. 
Learn more at brightspot.com forward slash marketing trends.